This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Tim Winton, welcome back to Better Reading. Oh, thanks for having me, Cheryl. Now, you need no introduction, but I will introduce. For, there might be one or two people out there that haven't heard of you. Tim has published 29 books for adults and younger readers over his amazing 40-year literary career. And it was 40 years last year, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So we're, Oh, thank you. So we're 40 plus now. Yeah, yeah, 40 plus. Got that out of the way. Oh, I know. Um, all the books have been translated and 28 different languages. I mean, that makes my mind boggle. I don't know how, the, how they do that. He has been shortlisted for the Booker Prize twice, won four Miles Franklin Literary Awards and was designated a living national treasure by the Australian National Trust in 1998. Wow. How does that feel? Uh, it was it was odd because uh, I was quite young in 1998. I think I was, um, I think I was in my 30s. Right. Yeah. So um, yeah, it was, it's a it's a lovely it's a lovely thing. Yeah, yeah. Peculiar. It is. It's for the body of work, isn't it? Mm. Most recently, he has written, narrated, and executive produced a nature documentary series called Ningaloo. Is that a correct pronunciation? Yeah, Ningaloo, 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 yeah. Ningaloo. Now the Arbiers are formally honouring his significant contribution to Australian cultural and literary landscape with the Lloyd O'Neill Hall of Fame Award. So I'm thrilled to be talking to you, as always. Talk to me about, I see writers write different genres, right? And I've been thinking about what I'm going to say to you for the last couple of days and what I've read and what I've loved, which is almost everything. The Writers is my favourite. I think I told you that last time. But when I read a Tim Winton, it's so distinctive in its storytelling. I want to know how you get to that as a writer, how how you tell a story? Well, how you maintain, regardless of character, regardless of storyline, that you have there's a common thread to everything that you write, mm-hmm. even when you're writing short stories. Yeah, I don't know. I think I've been doing it so long that I I don't really know what I'm doing, um, and I don't examine it very closely. It's instinct, I suppose. There's a combination of instinct and experience of knowing when to trust the impulse and how to follow it. And you learn to hold your nerve and you learn to be patient and you learn, and you learn to wait for the rhythm and the momentum of the, of the story. And I'm kind of writing for myself, um, so that's... Every time? Yeah, I'm, I'm, writing, I'm writing for myself. I, I just don't think it's, it's worth tying yourself in knots trying to second-guess the mm. reader. Um, mm. I'm thinking is, would I read this? You know, I'm not the most patient person and not the most patient reader, but essentially I'm, I'm writing for the same reasons I read, you mm. know, and this is 
been since childhood. You know, I loved books because they took me somewhere. Um, I could be anyone, I could be anywhere, regardless of who I, I, I you know, I am or was. You know, as a six-year-old boy, mm. I could be anybody. I think when you when you're absorbed by properly absorbed by a book, you take it into a kind of flow state, you know, yeah. and it's, it's, it's what I call the eternal present tense. You're not thinking about all your problems. You're not thinking about paying the rent, where you park the car, what yeah. you need to do for your shopping. Or when I was a kid, you know, what I should be doing in terms of my homework or, you know. That's why I write, to be in that state. Um, and it's not that different, you know, it's very similar, actually, when you're in the moment, when it's working, when you get there as the writer on the page, mm. you're in that flow state and it's um, it's liberating. Mm. It's it's uh, it's a little bit addictive. Mm-hmm. Um, the trouble is it doesn't get any easier. The more mm. you do it and the older mm. you get, you'd think it would get easier mm. uh, and that you would get better at it, but it doesn't doesn't necessarily follow. Mm. Are you the kind of writer that has, like, the, the stories in your head and it's been something that you've been thinking about and preoccupied with and then you think, okay, I think I've got something, I'll start writing? Or are you the writer that starts writing and it kind of the story comes with you as you go? Yeah, I, I, I most often just start with a, an inkling, you know, um, mm. a kind of rough outside chance and then I go to the track and hope the horse runs. <laughs> Um, mm. And and then I I find it in I find it in the work I find mm. it in the days and days and days that you go to the desk and you and you, you persist and and, mm. and f- so there are books that have had long gestations where I've thought about them for a long time before I've started writing but even then I don't I don't really know mm. what it's about and where it's going I just know some bits that are in it. Mm. You know? Do you have a favourite? Mm, if I did, I wouldn't tell you. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like having a favourite child. It's yeah. bad parenting. Yeah. Um, look, I, you know, I, I have fond memories of certain books in terms of where I was when I wrote them mm. or some of them I can hardly remember, to be honest, because, mm. um, you know, there's been a few of them. If you had 29 kids, you might be struggling to, uh, to remember, to remember a favourite. Probably the, your favourite would be the last one you had because it's the last one whose name you can remember. <laughs> but... Um, no, I don't. I don't think I have favourites. And there's different reasons to have favourites. You know, where, you know, there might be a, a a book where you did something difficult that you didn't think you could do, and you made a decent fist of it. And there's other books that you know might have paid the rent for ten years, and that's a reason for the, to be fond yeah. of them. Yeah, um, of course, because you got to uh, live. Yeah, I I do it for love and mm. and whatever. But this is all actually all I do. I'm mm. I'm a I'm a sole trader of, and I've always approached it. Because I come from the working class, it was the only way I could understand it for myself starting out and also make it coherent to my family and my peers. So I'm, I'm a tradesperson and um, I have always had this aspiration that, you know, you put in a fair day's work, you get a fair day's pay. In the arts, it uh, mostly doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. But um, it's a really odd way to make a living, mm-hmm. to to come from the manual classes and then to make a lifelong career 
out of your head, mm. just make pulling stuff out of the air. Yeah, I asked you the question about what makes your story so distinctive. I think for a reader, and this only just came to me, I think what makes them memorable for me, because I do remember them and I remember lots of characters, because your character development and your sense of place development are very alike and meld into one. Mm, that's probably true. I'm... Place is very, very important. Mm. Uh, the place always comes before the characters. Mm. The characters have to come out of the place. Mm. You know, there's a kind of ecological logic. But they are in work. that place. They yeah, are the and place. They, and they have to be, it has to be told there and they have to be those kinds of people because of that place. Mm. Um, so, I, I, you know, I, I do think geography and ecology are really important and that they have a huge impact on us and, that, and we obviously have a huge impact on them and, mm. the, you know, the world's about relationships mm. um, and that's just uh, that's a fact of life that we often forget. I mean, even amongst ourselves as humans, mm. um, we, we've been sort of sadly for the last 20 or 30 years been trained to think of life as a series of transactions mm. um, and the way that we treat each other is in a very instrumental, transactional mm. way. And sadly, we also have that kind of view about the world that we live in, the places mm. that we're in, the places that we that sustain us. We have a very instrumental, transactional, extractive mm. um, I've uh, talked with, attitude. Yeah, I've talked about this before on the podcast. There was a period in my life a few years back now where I was really struggling. I was struggling. I mean, if I look back at it now, maybe I was depressed, but I didn't know that at the time. I was driving and I happened to hear an Aboriginal elder and I never quite got his name, but he was talking about the difference between um, Aboriginal people and white people as far as he was concerned. When he said it, it was so crystal clear it changed my life. He said the problem with white people is happiness is in the future. Mm. It never comes, right? Oh, yeah, it'll be great on Friday because then I'll have a weekend and I can't wait to, you know, do this and, oh, Monday's coming and whatever. He said but the way that he interacts with life, which is getting back to what you were saying, is about the relationship in that moment, mm. whether it's a relationship with the, you know, the environment, with the, you know, the park, the your workplace, whatever it is in that moment is what he said was the most important relationship we should have. Yeah, I think there's great wisdom in, in that because, you know, the way that we in our culture, uh, in kind of mainstream developed cultures, we're always banking. Mm. Um, we're doing every, we're banking for the future. We're banking. Yeah. It's not just our super. It's yeah. it's relationships. We're, you know, it's all we're not doing anything in the moment that is important enough that that'll somehow get in the way of what we want to get down the track. Mm. And um, and what that means is that we have become very unskilled at um, paying attention mm. and noticing and things. Yeah. And that's been one of the lessons of my life is realising that children have a higher skill set about a lot of that stuff than mm. we do mm. and animals do as mm. well. And because we are uh, have become so denatured mm. um, and we are living these transactional lives not as citizens and dwellers of the places and, and mm. fellow creatures of the places mm. that we're in, we're, we're consumers and we're seizing things, enclosing them and banking them up against the future. Mm. Meanwhile, in the moment, we're just missing out. Mm. We're not smelling things. We're not hearing things. We're not seeing the stuff that's right in front of our faces. And also 
most tragically, I think we're not feeling mm. things. Mm. You can see uh, certain animals react to the, to the feelings of another animal without verbal cues. They can sense the distress or anxiety of, of another animal. You can see whole groups of animals re- reacting to um, shared stress and, and anxiety. And the tragedy is that um, we're, we're sort of geniuses at blocking off other people's distress or aspirations. Mm-hmm. Um, Even our own. Yeah, of course, you've got, yeah. You, you, can't own, mm-hmm. you can't own your feelings. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, you can see that in, in the culture. You can see it in... Our politics, you can mm. see it in our advertising, mm. and you, sadly you can see it in many of our arts. There's this struggle to feel. Mm. Um, and so there's this, as a result, this is not the only reason for it, but it's partly a reason why we push to extremes mm. so often just so that something gets through, so mm. we can say that we felt something. Mm. Um, mm. That's why we like to terrify ourselves and disgust mm. ourselves as a form of entertainment. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The last time I spoke to you, we were talking about books and we were talking about films and we were talking about your books becoming films. And you said to me, and that's really sat with me actually, you said to me that your relationship with a film, a film of one of your books, was really that it was just another story. It's a standalone story. It's not the, it's not the book. It's a f- story and it's a film. Yeah, it's a relative. It's, yeah, it's not, that's what it's you not said. the thing. It's just yes, a relative. It's a cousin. Um, yeah, I, I, earlier today I bumped into David Wenham, the actor. Oh, uh, wow. He's been, wow. In, he's been in a number of, uh, we just bumped into us in, in studio, passes, ships passing in the night. Wow. And we had a bit of a laugh when he was almost a boy. He was in the in the uh, theatre adaptation of That Eye of the Sky with yeah. Hugo Weaving. He does yeah, this a wow. long way back. He's been in several f- films, uh, adaptations, uh, uh, over the years of my work, and uh, yeah, we had a we had a laugh about a couple of relatives. <laughs> yeah. Oh well, it's bringing me to to the latest to the documentary, mm-hmm. and this is, I guess, another form of storytelling. From what I've seen of it, it is again so distinctly your voice. Well, actually, and literally, literally my voice because I'm I'm I'm, uh, I'm doing the voiceover. I guess I'm narrating it. But you wrote it, but, it as well. Yeah, and it, it's a, it was a huge challenge, a really difficult thing to to, mm. to attempt because I've never you know I've never written um, science television or natural history TV mm. before, and uh, it was it was scary. 
because mm. uh, it was so far out of my comfort zone mm. and my experience. So it was a kind of a weird thing to be on this project, you know, facing the fact that at every single point on every day of the three or four years we're working on it, I could be confident that, that was, I was always going to be the least qualified person in the room. <laughs> and it was sort of good to be reminded of that. But, yeah, it's a diff- I had to find a different way of telling very complex stories that are, are about relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the documentary is about a place called Ningaloo in northern Western Australia, and it's about three enormous, rich, complex ecosystems that intertwine with one another and hold each other up like a family or in, you know, in the, the metaphor I use in the show is, you know, that uh, Ningaloo Reef... Exmouth Gulf and Cape Range are like three toes of an emu's foot mm. that keep it standing up alive and every, every, each toe is integral. You, you can't mm. lose one. So, yeah, telling a story about the kind of a, the geography of the place, the, the, the peculiarities of where it is, its remoteness, its deep history, its, its, um, it's long human history. Um, yeah. It was It was kind of a bit of a challenge and it's... It's three hours of television, so it's not it's not a small mm. piece. So mm. it was, um, yeah, it was an interesting thing to do late in life. Mm. Um, tell me, you had a few interactions with whales, I understand. Uh, lots of interactions with uh, with megafauna. I mean, yeah. this is actually the one place in the world where you can have more encounters with large animals. Mm. Um, in a single day than anywhere else in the world, mm. including the Serengeti and other, mm. other really famous places. Yeah, whales, whale sharks, um, dugongs, manta rays, you know, dolphins, mm. you know, it just goes on and on and on. Uh, and, yeah, we, you know, we were filming the behaviour of, of certain things and we were, we we're also able to film scientific studies and actually contribute to the science by funding some science um, expeditions. But, yeah, one of them I, I get to uh, help scientists slow a whale shark down in order to study it. And, and an animal that big, you know, which is like a, you know, mm. a greyhound bus, mm. the only way other than killing it and then cutting it up, you know, the only way you can stop it in the water long enough for humans to go and do their studies on it is to hypnotise it, basically. Mm. It's like hypnotising a chook. Mm. Um, except, <laughs> except it's nineteen thousand kilos of uh, yeah, so nineteen thousand kilos of animal. Um, so I, I was picking parasites off its lips, which kind of mimics the work that these little cleaner fish do. do. And and when that happens, the shark uh, and smaller sharks do this as well. They slow down and they pull up and go into a kind of vertical position and just stop in the water and open their mouths and let these little fish. T- wow. Take the take the parasites off them. So you know, I'm a bit bigger than a little cleaner fish, but uh, and not as good a swimmer. But uh, there I was hanging off the front of this thing. So uh, you're in the water as I was, well. I was, I'm in the water yeah. in front of this moving big, big moving shark. And I, I say in the show, it's like hanging off the front of a, uh, a moving bus, uh, and it's pushing me backwards in the water, and I'm 
and I'm tickling its, it, you know, pulling these things off its lips and it, go, it comes over all funny and then starts to slow down and then it starts to tilt up and then it pushes me to the surface um, wow. and pushes me out of the water and just stays there while, I, while I'm massaging it. And then all the scientists come in with all their instruments and, they're, you know, they're ultrasounding its liver and they're taking DNA samples and they're measuring it and, you know, this thing's parked. I mean, just it was a, a brilliant was idea. Yeah, how long did it stop for? Oh, it was quite a few minutes, yeah. you know, um, yeah. and we we did that on 20 different sharks uh, wow. that day. And the, Do they the, tag them and let them go? Uh, yeah, they yeah, they definitely yeah. let them go. I mean, some have little little satellite right. tags on them and others yeah. they, don't, they don't need to. Um, the amazing thing about a whale shark is that every single one has a specific individual set of dots, you know, all those dots on the wow. whale shark, that's its right. fingerprint. So yeah. they photograph them and then they, they recognise them when they come back next year and next year. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, so it's mm. so, yeah, we got to do, I mean, normally you're not allowed to touch uh, no. a, a whale shark. You're not allowed to be within three metres of a whale shark, let alone put your hands on it. So it's a really rare predicament, you mm. know, or, or position to be in. I think more people have been on the moon than have done that. Mm. Yeah, extraordinary. Why this storytelling? Why? How did you get involved in this? And I'm saying this, I just want to say that when I read a book, and even though I've been in the industry for over 30 years, maybe 40 years, I never see the work that goes into it. I only ever see the story. And even though I'm very privy to what, you know, what goes into a book, I don't see it because once it comes to me, it's pure story. I'm exactly the same with film. I never see... I don't even know that there are cameras in the room when I'm watching a film. I don't. That leaves me and it's all the story. I felt the same way with this documentary. Well, that's great because, I mean, in every scene there's four cameras. Yeah. There's a drone, you know, there's boats, there's vehicles. There's, I mean, there's a, there's a sequence where we go 20 metres underground into the aquifer and um, we're up to our chins in water with yeah. the, the cave over our head. And it looks like there's two people in the cave. Uh, there was six people at yeah. least in the cave. Yeah, the, the technical stuff is really challenging. We shot yeah. for 57 weeks to wow. to make th- yeah. that show and we shot 2,000 hours of footage for, yeah. for three hours. So, yeah, I mean there is part of all kinds of storytelling is to, is to get the viewer and the reader to suspend mm. disbelief and mm. to enter the moment and to care. Mm. And the reason I made the... The, the show, Ningaloo Ningaloo, is to make people care uh, about this place. First, to share this amazing um, mm. uh, world treasure. It's, you know, it's a global treasure and the audience uh, for the show is global. It's gone everywhere. So, you know, just to share this wonder, to get people excited about it, but also to let them know how fragile it is mm. and how threatened it is and... Um, and to hope that they care enough um, to help us defend it because, you know, there are still people trying to bring in industrial developments in a place that should never have um, these kinds of heavy developments in them. Um, Makes me so angry. Yeah, yeah. and, yeah. and um, so, you know, in my spare time, you know, I've, I've spent the last 25 years campaigning mm-hmm. for the preservation of that place and we've had, you know, great success and, and, and that's the kind of... Those kind of successes are what 
charge you up with hope that you know that you can make a difference, that you can get governments to, and, and you can get enormous bodies of people to uh, to help out. I mean, we stopped a pipeline development there a couple of years ago because 54,000 Australians mm. um, put their name down to say, actually, you know what, this is a bad idea. Mm. Um, Such a high price to pay. Yeah, yeah. so... We live in a wonderful world. We just need to value it. We need mm. to value its people better, mm. more, and we need to, you know, give higher regard to the, um, the the environment that keeps us all going. There's nothing more important than the air we breathe, mm. the soil under our feet, the water we drink and swim in. Mm. You know, everything else uh, has to come second to that. Mm. Now, dare I ask, are we, are, we, are we working on another project? Are we writing uh, a book? I was crazy <laughs> enough to be writing a book at the same time as oh, I was uh, doing this. Okay, so you are crazy. Uh, yes, I am. Um, <laughs> it's not something I would recommend because <laughs> yeah. we had really, really long shoot days. Oh, um, it imagine. was always hot and so it just meant getting up just those few more hours early to try and get, you know, not my normal work day in but just just plug away and get, get some down so... Yeah, there'll be, there'll be something um, in the not-too-distant future. I can't wait. Tim Winton, thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you, mate. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.